Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Hope Church family. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 and encouraging us to bring our copy of God's Word, whether it's on your lap or it's on your app. Get it open. We're going to have our eyes on the Word of God in just a moment. As you're turning there, my name is Scott. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, would love the opportunity out in the lobby after our service. I would love to meet you if you're just getting connected with us here at Hope Church. As you're turning to Mark 5, we'll be there in just a moment. One of the uh, distinct factors that make us human beings is our having emotions. Emotions are a part of the human experience. Now, husbands, do not look at your wife for the next 30 seconds. Some of us have more emotions and are more emotional than others. If I'm honest, my wife was in the last service. I am the most emotional in our relationship for sure. Maybe some of you husbands can relate to that. Emotions, it's something God put in us. It's a good thing. God made us to be emotional beings. This week, I went on a little Google search rabbit trail. Some of you have done that before. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. But I kind of dove deep into the, the, psych, the psychology of emotions. And I came to find out what some of you may already know. But psychologists have actually deemed six emotions specifically as the big six. There's a ton of emotion, hundreds of emotions that we have. But psychologists have deemed these the, the big six. Look at them on the screen. Fear. Anger, disgust, sadness, happiness, and surprise. I think anger, disgust, and sadness is how we all feel about an hour less of sleep this weekend. It's emotion, right? We, uh, we, we feel those. Like I look at that list and I say, yeah, man, that's, I could probably start to think of situations even this week where I felt some of those. That's why they call it the big six. Now, I am no psychologist, but pastoring and walking with people, and even my own lived experience, if I could just for a moment add a seventh, maybe call it the big seven. There's an emotion not represented on here that I know I've felt and maybe you feel even in this moment. Here it is. Guilt. An emotion we all have felt. An emotion even some of you right now are carrying within you. Crossed the line, dropped the ball, did something wrong. As followers of Jesus, we understand guilt is a, is a consequence ultimately of sin. The world is not what it should be, and so we cross the line, we drop the ball, we make a mistake, we do wrong, and we feel guilty about it. I'll be sensitive here. I understand a room this size, there's people everywhere. There are some people that have a real sense of guilt in their bodies today as you come to church. Some significant thing happened in your life that you feel guilty. But it's not always super significant things that happen in our lives that make us feel guilty. If you're like me, sometimes there's some trivial things that happen in my life that make me feel guilty. I'll give you one completely hypothetical example, 100% hypothetical. 
My wife maybe leaves the house for the day and she's going to go to Costco. So she'll be gone for seven hours, you know. And she'll tell me, hey, when, before I get back, can you do that thing? Just completely hypothetical thing. Doesn't real, not real life, completely hypothetical, do that thing. And so I say, yeah, of course. I'm a great husband. I'm going to do that thing. And so go on my day, hanging out with the kids, doing my own thing. And I'll get a text completely hypothetically of her asking me a few hours in, hey, did you do that thing? Husband, some of you have been here. You don't want to sin against your wife and lie to her. So what do you do? Hypothetically, I might send her this gift right here. Uh, <laughs> that is my favorite thing to send people when it's like, I don't know what to say right now. So I'm just going to send you this little gift. By the way, if you look in your little gift search and you type in guilt, that's the first gift that comes up. That's the guilty gift. It's, I, I get it. I, I don't know what to say, so I would just look at you like this. Again, completely hypothetical situation. Maybe you have found yourself in. I bet you there'll be a lot of those gifts being shared among the whole church family this week. Sometimes it's, it's trivial things like that, but again, I understand and want to start kind of lighter, but I understand to dive into some heavier stuff. We are people that feel this. It's not trivial things. It's not missing a honeydew item. It's it's serious things that are plaguing our lives that you right now are feeling guilty. But there's this funky thing that happens when, when guilt and identity start to flirt with each other. You see, when, when guilt and identity come together, it actually creates a much deeper emotion, and that's the emotion of shame. Guilt and shame are different. I'll put it to you like this on the screen. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to a person. I am bad. Guilt is something you feel. Shame is something you start to personalize and become. Another way to say it is guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. It's the thing that keeps reminding you of what you've done, and it becomes who you think you are. Ed Welch, a Christian counselor, said it like this, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. The reason I start our conversation today in our study of Mark 5 talking about shame is because we are going to continue our verse-by-verse -verse study, and we are going to meet and hear the story of a woman who no doubt is full of shame. For years, we will read, she has felt what Ed Welch just mentioned, inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love. So if you have your copy of God's word, hope, hopefully right there in front of you open. We're going to read starting in verse 21 of math, or Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what the word of God has for us today. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. 
A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It's the word of the Lord for us today. So what is happening here? Again, jumping right back in our study. What's happening is Jesus has gone to the other side to a place called the Gerasenes. And on the way there, a big storm happened. And with his authority, by his power, he shut the storm up with his words. He got over there and there was a demon-possessed man. And he exercised his power and authority over the demonic. They didn't like that in that area of town. And so they said, can you leave? And so he gets back in his boat. And now he comes to the other side, back to the Jewish people. And that's where we find ourselves. And Following the gospel of Mark, you have to understand Jesus is a celebrity at this point. Wherever Jesus shows up, a whole crowd of people gathers to hear what he has to say. What's he got up his sleeve now? I imagine them seeing Jesus' and his disciples' boat coming from the lake, and, and they all start crowding around. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people are there waiting for him when he gets here. And that is where we pick up in our story. So just like we have the last couple weeks, want to give us a sermon and a sentence. Here is we are, where we are headed out of this portion of Scripture. The only pathway to true healing and transformation is found in the power and presence of Jesus. We're going to see that in this story. The only pathway to true healing and transformation is found in the power and presence of Jesus. And to unpack that, we're going to look at two characters in this story and then two characteristics of this story. Two characters Two characteristics, let's jump in right there in verse 22 where we meet our first character, the desperate dad. Look at it there on your lap, verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Always want to remind you, this really happened. This is not a fairy tale or a fantasy. Imagine the scene. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are gathered around Jesus, and out of the crowd comes this man who is a ruler in the Jewish synagogue named Jairus. Now, it's important that the Bible calls him a ruler. See, if he was a Pharisee, the official title of somebody who worked for the Jewish synagogue, he would have been called the Pharisee Jairus. But he's not called the Pharisee Jairus. He's just a ruler Jairus. A lot of people think, theologians think, because the distinction between ruler and Pharisee, this man was a high-ranking layman within the Jewish synagogue, a.k.a. he is a volunteer. Now, the reason it's important to know who he is is because in order for him to have that stature, in order for him to have that position, he would have to have been a very privileged, honored man. 
He's a man of prestige. He's a a wealthy man. Even as it shows, he boldly approaches Jesus with a little bit of confidence. He's a man of high honor. Why is that significant? It's significant to see that a man like that is acting very unbecoming of a man of his position. He falls on his face at Jesus' feet. Now, for those of you that are new to Bible study, rulers in the synagogue were not on team Jesus. In fact, a couple years from now, they would put him on a cross with the Romans because they hated him that much. And yet here's this ruler of the synagogue named Jairus falling at his feet saying, you can do something about this, Jesus. It's important because... Those of us who are parents, we understand this. It doesn't matter the tradition or the prestige or the honor or the reputation you might lose. When your kid is sick, you will do whatever it takes. He may have never said these things publicly until this moment because his daughter is dying. And this man can do something about it. So he falls at Jesus' feet. We read from Luke's gospel account that his daughter is 12 years old. That's a very important distinction. Remember that. So Jesus accepts this man's invitation. He asks him to come heal his daughter, and Jesus says, let's go. But on the way there, he is interrupted. A great crowd is all around, and we meet our next character. Look at it in verse 25, the weary woman. The weary woman. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many Physicians had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. On Jesus' way to heal Jairus' daughter, we meet this woman. We call her the, the weary woman. Why is she weary? Well, the text tells us something has been happening in her body for 12 years. Bleeding. For 12 years, we understand this to mean menstrual bleeding. This meant, of course, that is extremely frustrating that she can't figure out why. But more than frustrating, it probably meant she had chronic pain in her body every single day for 12 years. She's probably unable to have children. But the most significant reason she was weary is no doubt that according to the Jewish custom, she would have been deemed ceremonially unclean. It's kind of hard for us to understand in the United States of America in 2023, but ceremonial uncleanliness was a massive deal. So I'll give you some cultural background to understand the weariness of this woman. While a woman was on her menstrual cycle, it meant she could not have any contact with the public world. The fact that she's even in this setting Hundreds, if not thousands of people, she is breaking the rules because she's not supposed to be in public because she is, has menstrual bleeding and has had for the last 12 years. Now, for most women, this was just a few days, but for this girl, it was 12 years. Not going in public, of course, means she was not allowed at synagogue. So this girl had not been to her faith family for 12 years. This also meant she would not be able to be touched by another person because somebody who was unclean could not touch somebody who was clean because then they would become unclean. So feel the weight of this. This woman would have not had anybody hug her for 12 years. This woman would not have been able to go to church 
with her faith family so that nobody would be able to put their hand on her and pray for her to be made well of this sickness. She'd probably been ignored and cut off from her family. She's an outcast. She's lonely. She's desperate. She's weary. At one point, she probably had, like many Jewish girls, the dreams and aspirations of becoming married and having children and becoming vibrant, a vibrant part of the community there in her town. And all of that seems to be an impossibility now because she is unclean. She's experienced this for 12 years, 4,380 days. You have to understand what we're reading is a story of a girl who no doubt felt shame. It was way past guilt. She didn't do anything wrong that we know of, but this became her identity. This is who I am. I'm the girl who is unclean in my village. I'm the girl where people just walk by me, not wanting to get close to me, lest they touch me and they become unclean. I'm the girl who's nameless. I'm the girl who's shamed. I'm the girl who's unclean. And the reason I think that's really significant in a room this size is there are probably people here today that feel like this girl feels. You come into this room with a whole bunch of shame and baggage and, and, and things that you have put on yourself or other people have put on you or you've been dubbed with. That's who you are. You've been told in your family of origin, people at work, you've been told you are not good enough, not smart enough, broken, too much work, alone, tired. You've been ostracized from your family. You're longing for connection. You feel this girl. But I don't think that's all of us. See, I think there's some other people in the room, and you would actually identify more with Jairus. If you're honest, you feel a little bit significant in your life. You walk in a room like Jairus did, and, and people stand up because you are a person of honor and significance. You, you're the right man or woman for the job no matter what the job because you've always just been that guy who can do the right thing. You're Jairus. Or that girl who has the right answers. You are Jairus, and I want us to see before we move on in this story how different these people's lives are, and yet they had something very significant in common. I'll put it to you on a chart. Let's look at this. Jairus and the woman. Jairus was, was wealthy. The woman was poor. She spent everything on doctors. Jairus was well-known. The woman was unknown. We don't even know her name in Scripture. Jairus was respected. The woman was rejected. Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. The woman was not even allowed in the synagogue. Jairus came to Jesus boldly. The woman came to Jesus secretly. Jairus had a 12-year-old child. I told you to remember that this woman had a 12-year-old condition. Their lives couldn't be more different, and yet they had one thing in common. All their needs were met at the feet of Jesus. This is really, really significant. Again, not to belabor this, but there are Jairuses in the room, and there are the women in the room. And I just need us to remember as we study through scripture, if you're here today and you're a Jairus, you may have all the prestige and all the honor and all the significance, but we need to press in and remember the reality that in one phone call, all of that can drop out from under your life and none of that matters anymore. We don't know what Jairus was doing and all his significance and honor, but it didn't matter because he got one call that said, your daughter is dying and all of that meant nothing to him. And the only thing that mattered was getting to Jesus. Some of us who are gyruses need to feel that. Or maybe you're here and you 
much more identify with the woman. We even prayed with people at both of our last services that are carrying a physical ailment in your body, maybe for years, and you understand the plight of this woman. Before we move on, we'll give one more quote from Kent Hughes. He said, here we see two desperate representations of society, both beyond natural help. For 12 years, the girl, that's Jairus' daughter, and the woman had led such different lives, but now adversity had bound their souls unaware together, and they were both to be recipients of God's life-giving power. As human beings, we may come into this room with all different kinds of life experiences, shame, lack thereof, but all of us need more than natural help. And I want to show us today that we need the power and the presence of Jesus, no matter who we are. Next week, come back. We're going to unpack this story of Jesus going to Jairus' house and performing a miracle. It's an amazing story that we will unpack next week. But we'll spend the rest of our time talking about this woman. We read from our text that this woman has tried everything to fix this. Every doctor, every experimental remedy, every specialist, she's gone everywhere and spent everything she has, and it all failed. She's hopeless and has all but given up, but then she hears some good news that Jesus is in town. Pick it up in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So with hundreds of people clamoring for Jesus' attention, she sneaks through the crowd. I imagine her hood is up and she's just clinging to one last shred of hope that this might work. Shame meets desperation meets one last clinging shred of hope that maybe he can do something. And that leads us to a couple characteristics we see in this story. Here's the first one. The miraculous moment. The miraculous moment. Look at it in verse 29. Immediately and immediately and immediately and immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Come on, we read a lot about miracles. We're so used to miracles. For 12 years, this girl had done everything she knew how to do. 12 years of agony, of searching, of striving, of hoping, of praying, of going to every single professional that exists and giving every ounce of money that she had and nothing worked. And in one instant, Jesus, this incredible authority, heals her without even saying a word. It says later that power came out of him. It's that Greek word dunamis we talked about a couple weeks ago. We get our English word dynamite. This is the authoritative dynamite power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And without even speaking, what doctors couldn't do for 12 years, what specialists failed to do for 12 years, he does in a moment without even using his words. you got to know that wasn't just the Jesus of a couple thousand years ago. He's alive and at well today. text says she knew it. She knew it. Right now, I know that I know that I know the Bible says she felt it, but the word in the original language felt is not so much physical as it is intellectual. It's the Greek word gnosko. It literally means I know within the depth of my being 
This is different. For 12 years, what I knew in my body, I no longer know in my body. I know it, and it's more than a feeling. I'm healed. This is massive. I don't know if you've ever been sick for a while. I pray with a lady who had literally had this exact same condition on Thursday. She just had to share a praise report because she prayed Mark chapter 5 over her life every single day for years. And God answered her prayer and he healed her. That happens still. Praise God. Praise God. And again, remember the significance of this culture. When this unclean woman touched Jesus, the culture said Jesus would become unclean. But that's not what happened. Because of the power and authority of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, when the unclean woman touched the clean Jesus, he didn't become unclean. She became clean. It's the power and the authority of Jesus. How did that happen? That is our second characteristic of the story. It happened because of the faith factor. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Again, imagine this real-life scene. I don't know if you've ever been to Disneyland on a Friday. Everyone's headed to Star Wars land. There's thousands of people, and you're like sardines trying to get to that place. That's what we're seeing here. And out of nowhere, Jesus stops. And because they're all here for him, they stop. And there's this tense moment where they're saying, what are you stopping for, Jesus? And he says, who touched me? We, we can just admit, that's a weird question, Jesus. And that's what his disciples said. What do you mean? Who touched you? Jesus, look around. Everybody touched you. Literally, hands and elbows and shoulders. We're, we're packed in like sardines here. Everybody touched you. Here's what you have to understand. Jesus was not asking who touched him because he did not know. He is God in the flesh, and he knew exactly who touched him. He wanted everybody else to know who touched him. He's about to do something to change this woman's life. He wanted his miracle to be evident to everyone around him, including Jairus, by the way, who's standing by watching it all go down. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hold on, Jairus, before we get to your house, I want to show you what I do. That's a flex. <laughs> Look at what it says, verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, it's done, it's fixed, it's healed came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Again, let's talk about this. She knows that she knows that she knows she is healed. Like there, there's some celebrating going on in her soul. I'm healed, but at the same time, uh-oh, I just did what I was not supposed to do, and now I'm being called out for it. So there's a cause for celebration, no doubt, but then there's also a cause for more shame. Here I am, this unclean girl, doing what unclean girls do and breaking the rules. This is what we see in this scene. You could cut the tension with a knife. And so it says she told him the whole truth. She, she falls down in fear and trembling, tells him the whole truth. What does that mean? She confessed publicly what she had Okay, here we go, Jesus. 
What are you going to do about this, Jesus? I imagine the religious rulers, you could follow his life. All the Pharisees are always in the fringes watching how he's going to respond. Okay, Rabbi, you know the Jewish law. You said you came to fulfill it. There's this situation here where she has clearly crossed the line. She's clearly broke the rules. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? We can't wait to find out. How are you going to handle this one, Rabbi? Supposed son of God, what are you going to do now? How are you going to strike this girl down for her transgression? Let's see what he does in verse 34. And he said to her, daughter. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We don't know much about this girl's cultural background. But we can assume because of her Jewish heritage that she had been ostracized from her family. If you can't go to the synagogue, you can't be a part of this family. If you are unclean, then you are unwelcome at our table. Then comes this this rabbi from Nazareth, and he's doing things nobody can do. And he's saying things nobody should say. And he calls this woman daughter. This story is the only time we have in Jesus' life where he uses this really affectionate nickname, daughter. I imagine her crying in that moment. Imagine all the circle kind of opened up and here's this girl. I imagine her staring at the ground, crying, hearing the word daughter, but thinking, no way he's talking to me. I'm nobody's daughter. I'm nameless and shameful and unclean. That's what I've been told for 12 years. He called her daughter. She had identified as everything else but a daughter. Many of you know my wife and I and our kids, our story. My wife and I, Candace, have four kids. Be on the screen. That's Bryce, Avery, Blaine, and Aria. Bryce, Avery, and Blaine are our biological children. But six years ago, we met Aria, and we began to foster to adopt, and we have adopted Aria into our family. Our youngest is adopted. Her name is Aria, and we've had her for six years. And I don't want to tell stories up here about adoption as if it's not a very, very, very hard thing. A lot of, church, a lot of people in our church family are adoptive and foster families. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. It's tough. But God is gracious. The reality is that girl is my daughter. And I remember... As she began to grow up, probably a couple years ago, and if you're in adoptive foster families, you understand they start asking big questions earlier than you're ready to answer them. (laughs) And we miss it all the time as parents. We are not bad a thousand. There's times where our kids are asking deep, theological, awesome questions, and we completely miss it because we're too busy doing something. But there's times where it's almost like God says, hey, buddy, this is a big one. And that happened a couple years ago. I don't remember all the circumstances, but I remember there was a moment where Aria was in the house, and she was probably around six years old, and she asked a really, really, really big question. She looked at me, and she said, who's my dad? And, of course, I know she meant her biological father. We don't know much about him. We haven't told her much about him because we don't know. And so I knew, okay, this is a big deal. So I remember taking advantage of that moment, and I remember I got down on my knee, and I kind of grabbed Aria's face, and I said, listen, babe. This is really, really important for you to hear. I am your dad, and you are my daughter. 
Now listen, she's six. She did not say, thank you for changing my life. No, she said, okay, and she ran and did something else, okay? I'm gonna have to continuously remind her of that, but it was a moment for me that I'll never forget and I'll continuously remind her of because the reality is for two years of her life, I was not her dad. She was not my daughter. In fact, she was called by a different name. We didn't even know her yet, but then this beautiful thing happened called adoption. And we began to have her in our home and there was a day downtown where the judge's gavel fell on her life and she became in that moment my daughter. By law, she became Aria Worthington. This is really significant for us as Jesus followers because the same thing is true of you and I spiritually. You and I, for however many years before you knew Jesus, you were called by a different name. But I hope you hear, child of God, you no longer need to walk under the shame of an old name because that's not who you are anymore. Aria doesn't even know her original name because that's not who she is anymore. She is Aria Worthington. And for you, you need to not let the devil beat you up with the shame of your old name. You need to preach the gospel to yourself that the gavel of heaven fell on your life and Jesus stands just like he did with this woman and calls you son and daughter. Look at it in Ephesians 1. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Listen, child of God, I believe Jesus called this woman daughter on purpose. He's saying, I don't care about those 12 years of shame anymore. I'm changing you, and I'm calling you by your new name. You are daughter. If you're here today, you need to hear me clearly, and you don't know Jesus, I've got good news for you. God is always adopting more kids. <laughs> He's always adopting more kids. And today, you no longer have to walk in the shame of these names that you're carrying and can't do it because you don't have the strength because you weren't meant to. Today, you can, like this woman and like so many people in this room, be called by a new name, son or daughter of God because of the grace of God on your life. Hope that happens today. I've been praying for people to, to experience becoming a part of God's family today. Back to the story. He says to her, your faith has made you well. Notice it doesn't say your, your touch has made you well. It doesn't say my garments have made you well. It says your faith has made you well. Now we know from the story of scripture, faith in and of itself does not save. It's the object that we place our faith in. The object of her faith was Jesus. Jesus is who made her well. That Greek word for made you well is the word sozo. It's actually a word that literally means saved. Your faith has saved you. Now, New Testament scholars fall in two different categories because half the time that word sozo is used in the New Testament, it's used to, to describe a, a literal saving from a perilous situation. You got saved from danger or distress. But in the other half of the times that word sozo is used is, is to talk about spiritual salvation. So in this story, what kind of sozo is it? What kind of saving? I believe that this woman was not just healed of her sickness, that she was healed from her sin in this moment. 
I believe that when she left this place, she was physically healed, but she began to follow Jesus and became his disciple, became a follower of Christ. I believe he saved her spiritually in this moment. And I praise God I'm in good company because the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus called her daughter. He fathered her because he had created faith in her. Again, I believe this because not only is he used that word sozo, which is to save, he also says to go in peace. Literally, go into shalom, a new reality. Go into a newness that I am sending you into. I believe Jesus changed this woman in a moment. And I believe he still does that even today. Look how J.C. Ryle said it. Christ did not change since the day when this woman was healed. He is still generous and still powerful to save. There is only one thing needed if we want salvation. That one thing is the hand of faith. Let us only reach out for Jesus and we shall be made whole. We read this story of a woman who was not healed by the touching of a garment. She was healed by the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why we said this story is really about the only pathway to true healing and transformation is found in the power and presence of Jesus. Now, I don't know how the Holy Spirit may be leading you to respond to a message like this, but I want to talk to two groups of people in the room today. The first is if you're here today, like many of us, you are a follower of Christ, and I hope today you've been filled up with confidence that you have been adopted into the family of God. What a beautiful thing. You are no longer called by whatever old name you used to be called by. You are now a son or a daughter in Christ. See, the problem is we live in a world that continuously tries to remind us of our old name. You and I have an enemy that would continuously like to remind you of your old name. And so we need messages like this to remind ourselves of the gospel. Follower of Jesus, rest in the gospel today. Some of you have been so busy striving to gain what's already yours in Christ. You're striving to please God. Hear this. He's already pleased with you in Christ. Some of you today are working so hard and striving for peace with God. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's already made peace on the blood of, of, the, of the blood of the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus today, stop striving. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, also... Stop sinning. He died for your sin that you sometimes arrogantly walk in. Paul says, should we sin that grace may abound? No, be far from it. See your Savior on the cross paying for the sin that you no longer have to walk in. If you're a follower of Jesus, rest in the gospel. But if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I've been praying and praying and praying that some people would enter into a new family today, the family of God, not by your own strength, not by your own striving, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to see yourself in this story. If you don't know Jesus, see yourself in the story of the woman. See, sin was the ailment. You suffered under the weight of it for years. Your entire life, in fact, this disease called sin, it made you an outcast. It made you an orphan. And hear me clearly, based on the authority of Scripture, it makes you very unclean. 
just like this woman, you've tried every remedy under the sun and nothing works. I can testify. I lived 17 years of my life as a high school kid, seeing that something was wrong, but not knowing how to pinpoint how to fix it. Some of you have lived decades longer than that and are here today saying, I have 50, 60, 70 years of striving and it doesn't work. Maybe like me, you visited the proverbial doctor of doing your own thing. Running to everyone and every substance and everything, hoping to be satisfied and come up empty. Some of you have tried the medicine of morality, hoping that self-righteousness and doing enough good things would get you to stop the bleeding in your life. And again, it hasn't worked. Some of you have consulted the specialist of self-confidence and willpower, striving for significance in your own strength to come up empty once again. And yet some of us still have trusted the physician of worldly ambition, hoping that you can get to the top of some ladder one day and finally get satisfaction. But every ladder you climb up continues to fall short of satisfaction. Would we all take notes from the weary woman in this story today? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, do what she did and fall at the feet of Jesus Christ, who in an instant can heal you in an instant can bring the satisfaction that you've been striving for decades to achieve. In one instant, Jesus does for this girl what nothing could in 12 years. And for some of you, you're thinking, man, it's been 25 for me. I hope you've seen over these last few weeks the wind and the waves, the demonic forces, and even our bodies that are broken all bow in obedience to the authority of Jesus Christ over our lives. Some of you have been hearing this over and over again, and today's the day you'd come and tell somebody, I understand I was made for a relationship with Jesus. Listen, it would give us no greater joy to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus in an instant, healed, changed forever. Go into peace. If you're here today and You are a follower of Jesus, and maybe this word from the Lord has just made you want to just get with the Lord for a minute in a posture of humility. Use this altar just to talk to Jesus, repent of some things in your heart, whatever he's leading you to do. But I also understand that a message like this, there's some things going on in our lives and our bodies maybe that we just want prayer for. So like always, our pastors will be up here. However the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond, I pray we would all respond in obedience. So Jesus, this is your time. Whatever it is you desire to do in every person in this room, would you do it for your glory, for their good? Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you for the saving power and presence of Jesus. It's in that name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship and respond to him today.